Well, good morning, Grace people. Good to be with you today on this beautiful, breezy summer day. It's good to be outside. It's good to be enjoying each other's company and uh, being in the presence of the Lord and learning from him today. Well, we are into week three of our summer sermon series in the book of Hebrews entitled Connecting the Dots of Faith. And we've already covered some important ground in this book slash letter slash sermon for the early church because all of those things are in Hebrews. And we're reading our way through Hebrews over the course of the summer, so you're not too far behind. You can catch up if you want to. Just be reading one chapter a week. That'll guide us through all 13 weeks of the summer to be studying the book of Hebrews. There's a lot in the book of Hebrews. Dan Lugo was praying with our team as we were setting up and preparing this morning, and he was just mentioning, he's like, you know, there's, there's a lot there. It's, it's deep. It's theological. It's, it's historical. There's a lot of connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament that shows up in the book of, of Hebrews, and it can feel a little bit overwhelming. That's why we're just taking it a little piece at a time, trying to kind of be encouraged in the Lord and listen to what God wants to share with us, because everything that he has to share is good and meant for our good. So we've been leaning into that, and as we began in chapter one of the first week, we laid out an important couple of questions, questions that are guiding questions throughout this sermon series that I want you to be thinking of as we're studying together, and those two questions are this, how do you see God, and how do you think God sees you? Because the answers to those questions are so important to us. They form, they shape our faith. They lead us on our journey of faith. And so we want to be attentive to those things. What do we see? And how do we think that God sees us? Very important things. And as we started off, we, we saw some things about Jesus being revealed right away in chapter 1. That we see Jesus as the Son of God, as the perfect image and exact representation of God. That imagery is right there, very, very clearly in the first words of Hebrews. The, the preacher who preached this sermon that first time wanted to just drive that point home. We're not talking about the prophets of old. We're not talking about the many different flawed yet inspired and used by God people from before. We're talking about the actual Son of God, the image of God, the one who is the creator, the, the Messiah, the, the high priest who's seated at the right hand of the Father, full of power, authority, and glory. This is the picture that we have of who God is in Jesus. So it's all about Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Angie led us to talk about how Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. He didn't just stay up in the heavenlies. He came down to earth as a real human being, starting at the same starting point as each of us, and then walking that journey, but doing it as fully God and fully human. And as he walked that journey, he pioneered the way, he led the way, not just as an example, but ultimately as the sacrifice that we needed, going all the way to the cross, doing what we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. That's Jesus, the pioneer, bringing forgiveness into a broken world of sin. So that's where we got started in this image of Jesus and understanding of who God is. And that's where we lead off today. As we jump right into chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles with you, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 3. If you've got it on an iPad or something like that, that's probably preferable on a windy day like today. But uh, however you've got it, however you'd like to follow along, open up there and then just listen along as I read, beginning in Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful 
to be the one who appointed to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Let's pause right there. A lot of metaphorical language and things being used here in these opening words of chapter 3. The author here, the preacher, if you don't mind me saying, is, is preaching about a house. He's talking about a house. And what is that house? Is it a physical building? Well, not really. The word for house here is a Greek word that means oikos. And what that really stands for is like household. It's like family. It's like community. It's all of those things. It's, it's not just blood relationships either. Sounds a little bit like one of our values, right? Jesus makes us family, like Dan was sharing about this morning. That's part of what's embedded right into this idea of a house, this house of God, this household of God. There's this household of God that God has created, that God has invited us into. And as he's talking about this household, he talks about two key characters, one really important one, Moses. Heard of Moses? Maybe you have. If you've heard of Moses, Moses is the key character of the Old Testament. And then this preacher says something that would be really radical to those early Christians to hear, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses. Now, we listen to that and might think, well, yeah, of course he is, right? But there's more at work here than just that. The author really wants to make it clear to these early followers of Jesus who were also deeply a part of their Jewish community. Their Jewish faith was their roots, and albeit they are our roots as well. But when they're talking about Moses, Moses stands in a category all by himself. I mean, Moses is the one who spoke to God personally at the burning bush. Moses is the one who spoke for God to God's people Israel and to Pharaoh when they were in bondage in Egypt. Moses was the one who led them out of bondage in Egypt. Moses is the one who received God's commandments handed to him on, on tablets of stone. He was the greatest leader, the greatest prophet, the ultimate law giver. This is Moses we're talking about here. And no one was revered as highly as Moses. So why is he making this point? Because the fact of the matter is, is that Moses was still a human being, a flawed human being, as great as he was, as inspired as he was, as, as important a figure as he is, he is not Jesus. As a matter of fact, their role in this household of God is very different. It speaks of Moses as being this ultimate servant, the greatest servant inside of this household. Inside of this household that was created by God is Moses, and, and Moses was faithful. He was a faithful servant in the house, but he wasn't the builder of the house, and he wasn't the master of the house or owner of the house. That title belongs 
to Jesus. Jesus, who was there at creation, created the whole universe, created everything. This Jesus is the ultimate son of God over this house. So there's Moses inside the house as a servant, and there's Jesus outside the house as the master builder of the house. Reminds me today of a couple ways that maybe we, we can think about this that might help us a little bit. Has anybody ever had somebody come over and clean their house? You know, a house cleaner every anytime? Okay, maybe you've got your kids as your servants being your household people, right? Somebody's got to clean the house, right? And when somebody cleans the house, they're looking for the dirt. They're looking for things that need to get cleaned up. Maybe they're there once a month. Maybe they're there every couple of months, whatever amount of time it might be. But they come and they look for the dirt. They look for things that need to be put back in order. It's an important role. Whether it's you or me or anybody else within the house, it's important that somebody is there to keep things in order and keep things straight. There's another kind of servant in the household that maybe you're more familiar with, a, a housing inspector. Has anybody ever bought a house or sold a house? Yeah, and you know what it's like to have the housing inspector come, right? The housing inspector has one job, to find something wrong with your house. That's their job, to make their way through the house, look for something that's wrong so that it can be fixed for the next owner. That's an important job. They're trying to make sure that things are safe, that things are well kept and taken care of in the house so that nobody's put in danger. An important role. But neither the, the house cleaner nor the house inspector is the house owner or the house builder. Has anybody here ever built a home? Have you ever been a home builder? Yeah? How about, how about a, a, a house owner? Do we have any house owners here? Yep, okay, all right. So some people have built houses, some people have owned houses, and it's a very different way that you think about that home, especially if you're a builder and are building it yourself or building it alongside someone else. Yeah, I've never built a house myself, but my father was a carpenter. My dad was a, a teacher of, of wood shop back in the day. And one of the things that he did with me that, that I remember so vividly is we had a lake home up in northern Minnesota, and, and we decided that we were going to add on a, a large deck and a screen porch on the front of this, this building. And, and, and my dad wanted to do this along with me, to give me a chance to learn and to, to figure out how these types of things were done. And it was an incredible experience. We spent a whole summer working on this. And we did it from the ground up. My dad made the plans. He, he purchased all the lumber. So we dug the post holes that went down into the ground. And we, we poured the concrete on the bottom so that they would have footings to sit on. And, and, we, and we did all the measurements and, and, and used, used chalk lines and used plumb lines to make sure things were square and all lined up. Stuff that I had never done before and really have never done since. Um, but, but I learned a tremendous amount from my father being alongside of him, the pride he took in building things, and the little tips and, and cues that he would share with me as we went along. Things like, like, like measure twice, cut once. Anybody who's ever done any kind of working in wood knows that that's, that's an important thing to remember, right? You know, think twice, do once, measure twice, cut once. Important. He showed me all of these things as I got to work alongside of him, laying down the, the decking, putting the things together. And, and another important thing that he taught me was that wood is forgiving. Maybe some of you have heard that before. Wood is forgiving. I, I didn't know what it, what it meant when he said it until he, he showed me. You see, we'd be laying down the decking, and the decking you need to be perfectly straight and perfectly lined up and, and correctly spaced. 
and you take this decking, and, and while it was good decking, no decking is perfect, no board is perfect. Some of it would have just a little bit of a warp to it or, or a little bit of a twist to it uh, as, as there were these long sections that we were laying down. And, and so we'd be lining them up and, and preparing to put them down, and I'd look at my dad, and I'd go, Dad, this one isn't going to work. There's, there's no way. Look, it's starting to twist off to the side. There's no way we're going to get it to, to line up and be perfectly in line. He would say, son, wood is forgiving. Just start nailing things in at the beginning part, and then we will push it into place, or we'll twist it back into its right position. We'll nail it down, and it'll stay in place. And sure enough, that's, that's how it worked. The wood was forgiving as we worked our way along. Strong foundation, wood on top that was forgiving as it was built together. But we took a lot of pride in that. It was ours. It was something we did together as father and son. It feels very different being the builder or the owner than it does being a servant or an inspector in the midst of it. So here this author in Hebrews is making this comparison. He's saying, listen, Jesus, the Son of God, is the one over the house, superior to Moses. Moses, who was the lawgiver, the one who, who wanted to make sure that everything was done right, but he in and of himself was not perfect. There's a difference between him and Jesus and the author of Hebrews isn't finished with his thought yet. As we continue reading and see where this goes, starting at verse 7, follow along with me as I read. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, as has just been said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. There's a challenge that's going on with these people who are hearing this message. It's probably similar to some of the challenges that we face today. You see, the people who were there at that time of following Moses didn't fully trust in God and didn't fully trust in Moses. And Moses, in fact, was not perfectly trustworthy himself either. Moses was a human being. And the failures of Moses and the failures of God's people were on display. Because while Moses brought this perfect law of God, God's people couldn't do it perfectly And they misused their understanding of God's goodness and God's grace and exchanged it for, for, for just 
dutiful, willful obedience, figuring that that is ultimately what's going to lead them into God's promised land. But, but that's not how it works out. Because you see, the law will never get you into God's promises. You don't get into God's family by just perfectly doing everything that God says perfectly. You won't get there. It'll never get you there. And it didn't for God's people either. See, God's people were sinners and so was Moses. And when we look at the kinds of things that they were trying to do, we see right in this passage that's being quoted here, and a longing back to the words of the psalm. Psalm 95 is what's quoted in this passage. And that psalm was talking about the disobedience that happened in the wilderness. The disobedience of Moses and the disobedience to Moses. Two key things happened. First of all, there was the incident with the rock. Moses with God's people, God's people out in the wilderness, and, and they've got no water, they've got no food, and, and, and they're getting thirsty, and in their frustration, they're demanding from Moses again, Moses, you've got to do something. We need something to drink. And Moses turns to God, and God looks to Moses and says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and speak to that rock, and that rock will produce water that will take care of God's people. So what does Moses do? Instead of speaking to the rock, he smacks it with his stick. He smacks it with his staff. God still produces the water, by the way. But because of that disobedience, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Moses, the greatest of all lawgivers, the great prophet, the great leader, makes one key mistake, and God says, you don't get to go in. Because that's the way it works with the law, folks. You either have to keep it absolutely perfectly, or you don't get in. It's a harsh reminder, but it's exactly what God is trying to remind God's people of. Out of that place of frustration, of wanting to, to do it himself, of wanting to prove something, Moses crosses over a line. And as a result, he doesn't get to go in to the promised land. But there was something else at work, not just frustration, but also fear. Because when they were circling together and, and preparing to cross over into the promised land, the first thing that Moses did was to send 12 spies to go off into this beautiful land of promise, spy it out, check it out, and come back and bring a report. So that's what he does. 12 spies go out, 12 spies come back. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, man, alive, you should see how beautiful this new land is. What a land of promise. There's, it's flowing with milk and honey, and, and, and the grapes are the size of, of people's heads. And I mean, it's amazing. It's incredible. What a gift. What an amazing promise. That was two of the 12. 10 of the 12 came back and said, you know what? There's also some giants. People who we look like grasshoppers to. I don't think this is a good idea. There's no way that we could go into that land and take that land. And out of that place of fear, they didn't cross over. Frustration and fear. Two things holding God's people back. Out of frustration and out of fear, 
they disobeyed God and didn't enter into the promise. And here's the thing. If we operate out of fear or frustration, we miss out on entering into God's promises too. We can only enter God's promise when we receive it by faith. It's about faith. It's what the whole book is about in Hebrews. Is where do we place our faith? Do we place our faith in ourselves? Do we place our faith in our ability to, to do it all right? Do we place our faith in, in earthly leaders? As good as they may be trying and as hard as they might be doing, is that where we put our faith? Because if we put our faith there, it'll always disappoint and it'll never lead us into God's favor or into God's promises. But faith will. Faith will. Folks, the present and future seem filled with a lot of frustration and a lot of fear. You don't have to look far. <laughs> You don't have to turn on your radio or your television for very long. You don't have to flip onto a news cycle or, or check out social media for very long to hear a lot of fear and a lot of frustration and a lot of anger. This, this community, this household, this oikos, this, this calling of God's people, spending a lot of time raging against the world raging against each other, or living in abject fear of what could happen. God's calling us back into a place of faith, a place of trusting. You can choose to shrink back and walk away because of fear, or you can lash out at the world in frustration, or we can listen to the master builder. We can listen to the one who is over the house, the one who is over the community, the one who is shaping and forming this community here into a community of grace. We're seeing a lot of other communities around us right now, communities of anger and communities of judgment, communities of fear, divided communities, broken communities. If ever the world needed a community of grace, it's now. But we must trust in the master builder. We must trust that, that the things that we see now are not what they're going to be because God is still at work. As it says in 1 Peter, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God has built a foundation, that foundation is Jesus. That's the foundation of this household, both the, the literal one that we talk about in, in, in this building, but more importantly, you as the living stones that are a part of this church. We are being built together into something. Each one of us is a living stone. And the mortar that holds it all together is God's grace. Because we're kind of rough around the edges. I know I am. 
That's why we need God's grace. We need his love. And we need to trust that he knows how to build this thing. And that he has not stopped building it. That he will continue to build his kingdom. He will continue to to build households of faith and people together. He will build something in us and through us for others. It's a spiritual house that he's building, built on the firm foundation of Jesus. It's a place for the Holy Spirit to empower us, to nourish us, and to point us to Jesus, who has already won the victory and has already spoken God's promise of forgiveness to you and to me from a wooden cross. And friends, wood is forgiving. As we move forward into an uncertain future, let's trust in the master builder. We're not going to build it ourselves. We're not always going to get it all right. But Jesus is. And the perfect builder, the master builder, the perfect sacrifice, the living stone, our cornerstone, will knit us together and is going to bring some rough stones from around the community too. And may they see in us that same faith, that same trust in a God who loves us and desires to build something beautiful for his glory, not for ours, for the love of his people and us together. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one who is doing all the work. And you have been laying this foundation since you laid the foundations of the world, Lord. And you knew exactly who you had to work with. Including all of those characters from Scripture, Lord. Moses and David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Ruth and Queen Esther and Deborah and all of those different characters, Lord. You knew what you were doing when you called imperfect people like them to be a part of what you were doing. And Lord, you have revealed to us now the perfect plan and the perfect builder. And because of that, Lord, we can trust that you know what you're doing and that you will do that work in us and through us for the sake of what you want to accomplish in the end of history. Father, keep doing that work in us. Help us, Lord, in those places where we are frustrated. Help us in those places where we are angry. Help us, Lord, in those places where we are fearful and want to shrink back. Help us, Lord, in each one of those places, not to try and overcome those things in our own strength, but to put our faith in your strength and in your master plan and in what you are building, Lord. We believe in you. We trust in you. We know that you are the only way. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself to us, reminding us again of the community of grace that you are building right here. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.